Well, good morning. My name is Ian Powell, one of the other ministers on the team here at St. Matt's. And um, I, we've got our new office down the back and um, with the building going on. It was great fun this week hearing the riot of fun and then coming out and seeing the serious discussion that going on. So it was just lovely, that sort of rhythm between those two things. Well, look, um, it, we thought since we're adults and since kids are, you know, wonderful things to have and since they've been looking at Jonah, let's, let's have a look at Jonah together. Uh, he's a, what's sometimes called a minor prophet, but absolutely major realities in it for us. I think you'll find this uh, really helpful no matter where you stand in the God question. But I wanted to start with the story. It's a true story uh, told by Max Licata, who was a missionary for many years in South America, about this little family, Christina and her mother, Maria. And um, they lived in a village uh, up in the hills. And as Christina grew up, she turned out to be a very beautiful young woman, wasn't much interested in the young men of the village, but wanted to go to Rio, where she'd heard that the real action was. Her mother, knowing more about the world, suggested that wasn't a wise thing to do for a young woman with no particular skills to go to a city like that. But she woke up one morning and Christina had gone. She'd caught the early morning bus. It was the only bus in the day that would go all the way to Rio. And there was a message for the mum just saying, don't worry about me, I'm going off for the adventure. Well, Maria bought a ticket for the next day's bus. And as she was waiting to get in the bus, she had a whole series of pictures, just about all the spare money she had, went into one of those photo booths where you put a few bob in and you get three pictures of yourself, sort of the old passport sort of photos. And she went into Rio to look for her daughter. Couldn't find her. Looked for days until she ran out of money. And the last thing she did before she um, got on the bus, sadly, to go home was to, to go around to all the sort of cheap housing, sleazy sort of bars and nightclubs and stuck a picture of herself, the mother, on various notice boards in uh, phone uh, booths and things like that where perhaps her daughter might see it. Well, a few weeks later, Christina uh, tells the story that she came down from earning her money that night in a hotel. Um, starvation gets you to do things you couldn't imagine. Uh, and she was just pretty shattered. She came down and she said she suddenly looked up and there on the notice board was a picture of her mother, which burned into her, into her eyes and her heart. And she naturally reached out and took it. And as she was looking at the picture of her mother, a bit puzzled, she turned it over and on the back of it, and on the back of all the pictures, her mother had written these words. It, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. Uh, beautiful and moving words, aren't they? No matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. And Christina did. Now, you may know that as sort of echoing Jesus' fantastic um, parable he tells of the good, of not the good Samaritan, the prodigal son, which, as you probably know, has got two sons in it, and really both sons are seen here in the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah really is touching on some of the great themes that Jesus teaches from, particularly on the two sorts of sons that you see in the world, the older good boy and the young, younger scoundrel who leaves and behaves appalling, obviously appalling. I think let's pray that God will help us to hear the voice, his own voice, through his book. Father in heaven, thanks for bringing us together. Thanks for another beautiful day. 
Thanks for all the blessings we have living in this amazingly wealthy and safish country. But Lord, all these things are tiny and passing and momentary and often deceiving. But we pray that we would hear the voice of truth about you and about ourselves. Help us to have courage uh, to listen to what your word is saying. Uh, we pray you would bless us by speaking to us now through your spirit and word. We ask for this through Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. Well, Noah's pretty... Uh, Noah. Uh, Jonah's pretty famous. Let's see if we can get a picture up there. Uh, for the whale, uh, not much is said about the vomit, um, unfortunately, for those... Uh, those of us who are high class, we're just looking for the, the, the pictures. Um, I'm not going to major on the whale. God can do what he flipping likes with that. Uh, really, in a sense, if you want to understand the story, it's probably more important to think about the worm that turns up at the end of the book, what the worm's up to. But you can play with that yourself this afternoon. But I'd like to start off by sharing with you firstly about the aggravating God, then the amazing God, and then the about-faced people. Uh, the aggravate, I don't know if you think about God as aggravating, but I want to suggest to you when you begin to get to know God, think seriously about the God that Jesus talks about, he is very aggravating at times. Makes sense, doesn't it? Because when his son came, he, we found him so aggravating, we killed him. That should give us some indication that he's not just tripping around saying, be nice, because it's so nice to be nice. Uh, you don't kill people like that, you just ignore them, right? Uh, but Jesus is quite aggravating, and the God that he reveals is aggravating. And we see this in this um, book, the book of Jonah. Let's look firstly at Jonah, how God aggravates Jonah, then how he aggravates the Ninevites, and then again the uh, Jonah. Just listen to how it starts. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, Jonah is... An Israelite, he knows God, he's a prophet, he's in a very special relationship with God. He pops up in some other parts of the Bible and um, here God gives him a special job to do, uh, as happens to prophets. He's told to go to the great city of Nineveh. Okay. Now, this, this will help you because all these places are real places. This is not happening in galaxy far, far away, etc. Uh, this is all you know, real stuff. Here is... Here's where we know Jonah lived. It's in the northern part of the nation of Israel. He was one of the very few prophets who came from the northern part, which later on was destroyed by the Ninevites, by the way. Um, God says, go to Nineveh, that way. He goes that way. Um, that gives you a bit of a clue about what a great idea he thinks God's idea is. <laughs> now, it's not said, but as a matter of fact... What Jonah is saying to God is no. Uh, as rudely as possible, he's waving the royal rude finger at God and saying, you want me to go this way to Nineveh? This way. Right? It's, this, it's the absolute opposite of what God says. It's exactly like you and I do. Love your neighbour, especially your enemy. No. Be generous, not greedy. No. Right? Be honest, not lying. No. Right? Keep sexual intercourse for marriage. Kidding. Right? We, we will not let God, the creator, designer, maker and giver of everything, tell us what to do. That is the essence of evil. In the end, when God is in your face, as he was in Jesus, 
and you can't just sort of pretend he's not there. In the end, we, we get violent with him to get him out of our way. Jonah clearly finds what God asked him to do here very aggravating and he just won't do it. Doesn't say anything, doesn't even seem to have the respect to say to God, thank you for the invitation, but no. He just silently nicks off and causes trouble for himself and as always happens with human sinfulness, trouble for those close to him, even if unintentional. So Jonah finds God aggravating. The Ninevites find God aggravating. The, the Ninevites, let me just see if we can show you a, a picture of the city of Nineveh. Now, we, we, we know exactly where Nineveh was. There's a suburb of a city still called it. It's in what we would call Iraq. Many of you who've been to some of the great museums in Europe will have seen some massive bits of um, the old civilization of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, which has been borrowed or nicked or preserved in various museums. And... What you've got on, the, uh, on one side is a picture of one of the great kings. I think it's Ashurbanipal II, but do you recognise him or is that his son? Anyhow, um, it, it's one of the great kings of this uh, kingdom. And then the artists have put together various quite accurate reconstructions of this e e amazing city. It was by far, archaeologists at the time saying, even if you include China and Tibet and places like that, which had huge civilizations uh, at various times around this, this was almost certainly the largest city on the earth at that time. It was vast and it was magnificent. The artwork is just so beautiful and you can still admire it today. Huge city, but it was actually famous for its violence. Of all the ancient empires, you know, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, all of which were at various, at various levels disgustingly violent. I mean, they make nice stuff. Uh, but they were horrible if you got on the wrong side of them. The Assyrians were by far the worst. They were absolutely vile and they gloried in their violence. Um, many of you will know that crucifixion was invented by the Assyrians, perfected by the Romans. They had other sorts of torture that they glory and they boast about it in some of their artworks. I'm not even gonna mention it. If you wanna talk about gruesome tortures, we can talk about it afterwards. But they were just a truly horrible people. And there have been various nations, even in the last hundred or so years, where you think, I'd rather be conquered by them than by them. And um, the Assyrians were the worst. And the Ninevites were very arrogant. I mean, they were a capital city. Um, every city has its sort of boasts. I remember when I first moved to Canberra, reading the Canberra Times and noticing in the Canberra Times letters how Canberra people were kind of fond of how clever we were how we had more second degrees than any other city and all these sorts of things. And we're a very educated, urbane, cultured people uh, that frightened Scott Morrison off from even going for a walk on his own. And this is what one of the letters actually said. He's too frightened to talk to us. We're far too, far too clever. Right. Friends, there's an arrogance about most important cities, most capitals. Nineveh had every good reason to be completely in love with itself. It was the unchallenged centre of everything. Technological, education, art architecture, military, did I mention military, did I mention their armies, right? They were just invincible. So it wasn't like sort of New York compared to Beijing or something like that. There was no comparison between Nineveh. They, were, they were, had every good right to be, as we say in psychology, up themselves, right? <laughs> Thoroughly impressed with how brilliant they were. And suddenly this little Jewish man turns up, who they would later on slaughter 10 of the 12 kingdoms, uh, sometime after this, with a message. 
He's there to preach against them. He's not there to tell them, hey, look, there's, there's a better way. God's so sweet and he's got a better idea. It's not, it's not what he says. The message is very clear. It's five words when he delivers it. It's five words in the original Hebrew, which is translated into eight in English. It's a nice short sermon. I, would have, I was only going to preach eight words and then I discovered that the film was going to go for so long that I, <laughs> I worked out, you know, just so you're not sitting there bored. Um, I don't know what the joke is. There you go. Um, <laughs> 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's his message. 40 days and this city, which had about 50 kilometres of walls around it, will be overthrown. It's a violent word, overthrown. That's the message. You think that wasn't aggravating? Right? Even if they had, or especially if they had some sense that maybe it's true. I mean, they, they had their plans, they had their diaries, they had their sort of schemes they were working on, and they were just thoroughly and totally interrupted. And then it got worse because in the end they got a deep sense from God that it was true, that they really had about a month and a half before the whole beautiful, magnificent structure was going to come down. They were aggravated. And then Jonah, of course, is the most aggravated of all. It's funny, the other day I had, had a, a friend uh, staying with us last week, and, and you know, he's has his, you know, he has had his moments of uh, feeling a bit suicidal, and I had the, the my phone just playing Jonah through to me, so I could keep listening to it. And it came to the part when Jonah said, "I would be better off dead." And he said, "Oh, that's relevant." But um, uh, it is extraordinary how Jonah mentions a few times that he would like to die. I don't think he's seriously suicidal. He's seriously angry, but we can argue that when, when we meet him. But um, what really aggravates Jonah is the fatal flaw in God, that he's just a little bit too nice. This is the fear. It doesn't seem, as I was brought up to think, that he was frightened of the Ninevites, although he had every flipping good reason to be frightened of the Ninevites. Um, they don't have debates. But in verse 4, when, when the, the word gets to the, to the Ninevites and they repent and they seek God's mercy, they're not at all sure they're going to get it, as we'll see. When God saw that they, what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he'd threatened. It's not just that Jonah felt like a goose because he said 40 days and you're all over and God says, well, actually, no. Uh, since they have responded so wholeheartedly, uh, plan B will not go ahead, which was destruction. Plan A instead will go ahead, which was mercy. But to Jonah, this is a good news story, isn't it? A whole city saved. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. He wasn't doubting, oh God, can you help us out? No, he just, this is just flipping wrong. And he became angry. Now, Jonah, the man of God, became angry with God because God was behaving badly, immorally. And you know what's interesting? With, with Jesus' stories, it's not uncommon when Jesus tells a story, particularly a story about grace his unbelievable mercy, for someone in the story to be angry, like in the story of the prodigal son. The really good son shows himself to be profoundly evil in the way that he responds to God's mercy. So he's aggravated by the... Jonah's aggravated originally and flees. The Ninevites are aggravated because their whole life and world is interrupted. Everything has to stop while they seek God's mercy. And then in the end, we know that Jonah is seriously aggravated because of God's grace. Listen to what he complains about. 
Jonah prayed to the Lord, verse 2 of chapter 4, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life. It is better for me to die than to live. What aggravates him is the grace and mercy of God. And, you know, a few years ago, um, I I went and worked in a a private school in Sydney. It wasn't my sort of world, but it, it was where I thought God called me to go. So it wasn't quite being sent to Nineveh, but it was not unlike that. But um, nice architecture, but um, nice swimming pools. But anyhow, moving right along. But um, uh, I went expecting that the school, particularly the staff, etc., that they probably, there'd be some things about Christianity as the chaplain they wouldn't like. And the two things I thought they wouldn't like, the uniqueness of Jesus Christ, the absolute, I am the way, the truth, that sort of thing Jesus says, I won't like that, that's culturally inappropriate. Secondly, I thought they wouldn't like the teaching of Jesus on judgment and hell. Because he is the hell preacher in the Bible, as you probably know. 11 of the 13 times that word is used, it's Jesus. Um, so I thought when we get to those parts of the Bible, they probably won't like it. And I, was, I got that prediction right. But there was another thing that never crossed my mind they would hate. And they really did get angry about it. Uh, one of the guys I work with, Pete Smith, his first sermon was on the grace of God, on the kindness of God. And he, he preached it. The chapel finished by 12.30. By the time he got back to his office at 1.15, there was a really hostile letter in his pigeonhole from one of the senior staff saying, thank you for undermining everything we've tried to do at this school for the last... Because, because Peter had preached on the stuff that Jonah found irritating, that God is gracious and compassionate, abounding in love, quick to forgive. There's a part of human beings that don't like that. And where you can sometimes feel it is when people talk about deathbed conversions. Right? They hate that. Right? There's only one of those in the Bible that I know of, but one is all we need. The man who dies next door to Jesus. One of the few people that we know for sure is in heaven, unless Jesus Christ is a liar. Because Jesus says, you today paradise with me. So you could argue maybe Peter doesn't go to heaven. Yeah, maybe, but unless you say Jesus Christ is an ignorant, ignorant person, he says he's in. How long was he a Christian? I mean, how many orphanages did he set up? How much money did he give to World Vision? Right? How helpful was he in cleaning the toilets at church? Useless. He did nothing. He knows he's going to be dead by the afternoon. Something dawns on him about who this man is dying next to him, the complete otherness of him. And he hangs, Lord, remember me when you come back as king. And Jesus says, today, you, me, paradise. People hate that. And sometimes there are, there are cases of people who, just before they die, seem to genuinely, it's very rare, by the way, if that's what you're thinking about doing, that's a bad gamble. <laughs> Overwhelmingly, people die the way they live. If you've been ignoring God now, you'll probably ignore him and keep pretending he's not there, even as you look down the barrel of death. That's certainly been my experience with people. Deathbed conversion is very, very rare, but it's a test of what you think about yourself and God. People, I was, I was shocked I'm not now because I'm used to it. People hate the free grace of God. Right? They think, no, 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 you can't be right. Can it? Because they don't realise that their only hope is the free grace of God. We live in this illusion that I'm actually basically a good person. Oh, I make mistakes, but who doesn't? 
Right? But beside God, there's not a great deal in between Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler. And I mean that quite seriously. Right? There's, they're massively different. In fact, I'd much rather be friends with Mother Teresa than have anything to do with Adolf. But in terms of earning their way to God, and Mother Teresa was real clear on that. I saw there was an interview at New York Airport where the, the journalist kept saying, aren't you a wonderful person? She said, no, I'm a sinful person. I need Jesus' death. No, no, you're wonderful. You're good. You're beautiful. No, 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 I'm a sinful person who needs Jesus to die for me. She got it. But we have this illusion that God marks on a curve, and he doesn't. And we all need the grace that some people only wake up to at the last minute. People didn't like it. It's very, there's, there's things about God that people find irritating. And that tells you something about you, not about him. Right? When you find yourself getting angry with God, and you will about various things, and finding it, it, it's a really helpful thing. Okay, what, what, what might that indicate? Well, secondly, that's the irritating God. The amazing God. Now, I did a bit of sort of searching around on the internet. It's not all that hard, is it? To, to find what the word amazing means. And it comes from a much older English word, which actually meant bewildered, confused. Right. Whoa! I think that can't be right, can it? It's that sense. What? What? How did that happen? Now, now it's softened a little bit, and it means, well, now sometimes people use it to describe socks. Oh, I've got this amazing new pair of socks. No, you haven't. Right? Um, to be amazed means to be extremely, you know, massively surprised. And it pops up, it's popped up in a few of our songs, hasn't it? The most famous hymn of all, I guess, is Amazing Grace. And as others have said, if you've never been amazed by grace, you probably are yet to discover what it is. How God loves the unlovely and will pay such a price to set his enemies free. But God is amazing. Now, Jonah is sort of amazed, but annoyed as well. Listen, listen to the beautiful description he gives of God. This is where Jonah's having one of his ugly, pouting temper tantrums. I knew that you are a gracious, compassionate God. It's not a shame he says that in anger. Slow to anger, abounding in love. A God who relents from sending calamity. Right? He, he really is... I got to see Macbeth the other day, and Macbeth is just—I'd just like to do it once, once a decade, a bit of culture. Um, and Macbeth's got one fatal flaw, it seems, which is, you know, he, he's open to ambition. In many ways, he was a good man, but it was that one fatal. And God's got one fatal flaw too, which is he is—he loves to be gracious, he longs to forgive, he takes no pleasure in the death of a sinner. In fact, it's so much his fatal weakness that he will die to save his enemies. And Jonah knew that. He is amazing, even at the point when he's not impressed with it. In the conversation which, that, which God has with him later on, where he's angry about something else, because he gets angry about God being merciful to the Ninevites, the horrible Assyrians. By the way, if you, I, I didn't know Assyrians still existed. I went to a, an amazing church some years ago in Sydney that's got people, and the, I, I met a guy who was an Assyrian. I thought it was some sort of a seance. Because I thought, they, but now the Assyrians are still alive and well in Iraq as, a, as an ethnic group. And he was lovely. It didn't seem very scary. But um, first of all, he gets cranky about God having mercy on the repenting Assyrians. 
Then he gets really cranky because God, you heard the story, he goes to watch what's happening. Maybe he thinks maybe God will get over his mercy. Maybe he'll have a second look at them and realise what a bunch of scumbags they are and give them what they deserve. He's supposed to be just and holy. We saw that last week. So maybe he'll do that. But while he's doing it, God sends, he's got made, God sends this beautiful big leafy plant that grows quickly and gives him shelter in that sort of Middle Eastern heat. And he's really happy. And then God sends a worm that quickly destroys the tree that Jonah didn't plant and didn't have a plan for, and it dies, and Jonah gets really angry. He wanted to die. You better die than to live. And God says to Jonah in verse 9, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Now, if God asks you a question, do you think you're right to do it? That's a bit of a clue what the answer isn't, but not for Jonah. It is, he said. I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. What a little temper tender that sounds like. I don't, I, we're, not, we're not given the story of Jonah so we can pass judgment and feel better than him, but I am passing judgment on him. I find I think you are one of the least pleasant people in the whole of the Bible. Right? And yet God does great things with him and through him, which is hopeful for all of us. And then... And then God challenged him, you're concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Should I not be concerned for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand, and also many animals? Now, I do think that's such a wonderful, isn't it? This is a wicked city. It is an evil city that God was going to judge. But God also sees that they're a city that he is concerned for. The God of love is the God of judgment. The God of judgment is the God of love. Simplistically, we say it's got to be one or the other. No, I'm afraid that's not how reality is. The holy God is the God of love and the God who, because he's good, will bring evil deeds into judgment. And he says, I am concerned for the great city of Nineveh. And look at how he describes, and this is a pretty good description of Canberra, although the numbers are different, 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left hand. Now, if you ask them, they knew exactly the difference in the right hand and the left hand. It's a picture saying they don't know what day it is. No, it's Sunday. No, no, that's not what you know. You know what those sayings mean, right? And brothers and sisters, this is true of Canberra. Full of people with many degrees, full of jobs that really are making a difference in the country, hopefully for good, would not know their left hand from their right hand. They do not know why they're on the planet. They pretend that they're in terra nullis universe and they're not. This is God's universe. They pretend that they answer to no one except their own conscience. Wrong. They will stand before God and he will judge them by his law, not the law that they make up, which just happens to be conveniently softer in the areas where they're weak. It's very merciful of God to look at an arrogant city like Nineveh and an arrogant city like Canberra or any other city, I'm not just picking on Sydney, whatever you like. He is concerned for us, and he knows that we talk a big game, but actually in all the crucial areas, we know nearly nothing. Right? I'm just, I've been having an interchange with an old friend from school who's very successful in his area of um, psychiatric care, etc., etc. And he made a comment, that, but I haven't commented on yet, I don't think he's listening, hi Pete if you are. But um, in fact, I'd bet a million dollars he isn't. Um, but he, um, he said, I like to put my brain in action first. And I want to write to you, try getting your brain to have a look at some of the evidence. Right? 
This is a dear friend of mine. I cannot, he, he, confident statements about Jesus and Christianity has never read one of the four earliest biographies of Jesus. He, he doesn't have to believe they're God. I'm not just picking on Pete. So many people I meet, strong opinions about Jesus. And you say, have you read one of the Gospels? Just one of I'm not asking you to read him a scripture, but any one of the four earliest accounts we have. Right? No, but I've still got opinion. Your opinion is worth nothing. You might put your brain in gear, but if it doesn't look at the evidence, right, it's got nothing to feed on. So many people in our culture, very confident, wouldn't, they don't know their left from their right hand and all the things that really matter. And God is concerned for them. He says, you're concerned about the plant that went down. I'm concerned for this city that hates me and I love it and I'm worried for it. What is the thing that upsets Jonah? I'll just pass over this. You can... What, he's upset about God having mercy on the Ninevites and he's upset about the loss of comfort. He wants to stamp his little foot and die because this, he lost his sort of cheap air conditioning. And that's what sends him into his, into his meltdown. Now, brothers and sisters, we're far too mature for that, aren't we? Right? That anything that challenges our comfort, we don't mind at all, right? No, we're not unlike that, really. But God is amazing. But the most amazing thing here is not just his holiness, that there will be a day of judgment without a doubt. Jesus is very clear on that. But that there is grace, undeserved love for the worst of people, the very, very worst like Jonah, who knew an awful lot about God and yet was still so arrogant that he would completely defy God and go in the opposite direction cry out for mercy when he's in the belly of the fish and receive it and then forget that he's received undeserved mercy and hate it when others get it. We do tend to make our sins small and the sins of those who hurt us big. God doesn't look at it that way. Well, let's have a look lastly at the about-faced people. I do remember being in the school cadets. I've never quite worked out why I joined them. Um, I only lasted for a year and that was not a glorious year. It might have been because I got to shoot 303s. That might have been. It's a mystery. But I do remember learning how to do about face. I won't illustrate it because it would drive some military men here mad. But an about face is when you're facing that way and the crawler who's become a sergeant yells at you and you're facing this way. The Bible's word for that is to repent. And you cannot be any sort of a friend with God unless you have repented. In Matthew's Gospel, at the first of the four Gospels, if you read your way through them, the very first public word we hear from Jesus is repent. Now, repent, is, it's not a threat. It, it's actually a wonderful thing. But it comes from the, the original word. Many of you will know this. The original word is, is just joins two Greek words together in, in the New Testament. The word meta, meaning change, like metamorphosis, things that change of form. Meta, noia. Is the second half, meaning brain. And it's to change your thinking. It's, it's a change of thought, but not an irrelevant one. That you know, oh, I used to think rugby league was the best game, and now I think it's soccer, uh, football, sorry. Not that trivial change. But it's a change of opinion and thought on the most profound, deepest, life-changing questions like God. Interesting thing, I don't know if you noticed this with... Um, with the Ninevites. It doesn't say the Ninevites believed in God. 
which is fairly irrelevant, isn't it? You know, the Bible says, I mean, I talked to someone recently just in the last week who said, I believe in God as if God, oh, thank you. So, you know, the, but, but you know what the Bible says, you believe in God, well done, so does the devil. And he has an emotional experience. He trembles, right? But they believed God. That is, they, they believed the words of God. And it's worth asking, do you believe God? Or do you only believe Jesus and his book when it agrees with you? In which case you don't believe him at all. The Ninevites believed God. They believed God that they had 40 days before God was going to tear the place down. And they cried out, just hoping maybe, possibly, who knows? I've underlined it there in verse 9. They don't know anything much about God. But I think maybe if we repent, who knows? He may forgive us. They've got no promise. They don't know the grace of God like Jonah does. But the Ninevites do repent. They change. They turn away from their sins. Jonah repents too, doesn't he? In verse chapter 1, verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Chapter 3, verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh, that, now, that very large city, and he began to preach, etc. That's what it is to repent. It's to change. Okay, I was going to run away from God, but now I'm going to go in the direction he wants. I don't think Jonah actually wanted to do it. Because anyone who knows God knows this, that when God sends you a message of judgment, he's normally preparing the soil for the message of grace. But you just won't understand grace normally unless you've understood something of judgment and sin. So sometimes when God is trying to save you, he will allow you to feel pretty bad. Because he wants you to realise there ain't enough water in that world to deal with you. Come, come to my son. Yesterday I repented. Actually, I repented in a few ways. I won't bore you with the details. But I was on my way to a suburb or part of New South Wales called Larbert. Is that what it's called? Larbert? And um, to visit a friend who's got some horses, etc. Avenue Braidwood. And I was in charge of the um, map. I did first level geography, so I'm good at maps. And um, also it was just after lunch, so there was a very good chance I'd fall asleep. So I was on navigating, not driving. And um, Alison's driving away and she looks across at my phone, which I'm not even paying attention to. Uh, and she says, how come that little, I think we might have missed a turn off. Because she had noticed that the little arrow thing was sort of in the middle of a paddock instead of on a road. <laughs> so she should mind her own business. But um, I looked at it and I thought, no, no, sometimes these things, they just, anyhow, I, we'd, I'd missed a turn off. And um, I just thought the road had a little jink in it, but no, it was a turn-off. And I tried to work out a way that we could just keep going that way and loop around without looking like a complete idiot. But in the end, there was no loop around until you got somewhere near Sydney or Nowra, I think. It was going to be a long loop. So um, in the end, we, I had to repent. And I think, oh, I thought this was the best road. This is actually a better road. It had bitumen on it. The other one was dust. But, but it was wrong. I can say it. I've had counselling. I was wrong. Right? And we had to chuck a Yui, go back, get the right. That's what it is to repent. You may feel sad. You may feel sorry. That's not the issue. The issue is you thought, oh, okay, this is wrong. I've made a mistake. This is the way to go. You can't be a Christian without being a person who's familiar with repenting. You can't know God. You can't know yourself with any honesty. Until you get used to thinking, oh, oops, wrong. Jonah did it. He knew God. He made mistakes. He sinned. High-handed rebellion against God. 
God mercifully saved him from the belly of the ocean and the fish, and then off he went. He repented. So do the Ninevites, and God has mercy on them. It's interesting is that they don't even know if he will. They just hope that he will. We know that he will. Right? Jonah knew he would. We know that not only is God a God of grace who loves his enemies and compassion, he feels even for the pain of his enemies. He's slow to become angry. I don't I love that. He's quick to forgive. And his son dies for us to pay the debt, to make it possible to be forgiven. So we don't have to be like the Ninevites and have a big U-turn and just hope that it's going to be okay. We can know that it's okay. It's wonderful. Let me share with you this um, story that I heard uh, some years ago. Uh, I hope it'll make things clear. Um, powerful king and a good king. Like good King Wenceslas, if you sing that hymn. That's a, he was a real man, good King Wenceslas, once looked out. Uh, he was a dead set good man, good king, loved his people, served his people, used his wealth and power. His brother killed him. It's sort of what happens to good kings sometimes. But um, there are good kings. There's a good king. He goes onto his balcony overlooking his harbour and he gets out his telescope and he looks and he sees there's a new ship in the harbour just coming in. And he, he, looks, he looks at it and sees on the deck, sees all different sorts of people. Some of them are working hard, some of them are being lazy, some of them are you know, smoking and gambling and, you know, whatever else you know, bad pirates do. Oh, that's something I wasn't told you. He goes up the mast and he sees they're pirates. Now he's not interested in who's a good pirate, who's a bad pirate. He just knows this whole organisation is corrupt. And because he loves his people... And pirates are kind of cute until you meet them. You may have met people who've come to Australia by boat and met with pirates, and they are utterly horrifying. So we're doing we're doing with real pirates, okay? Not the sort of pretend ones. Um, so he takes his navy out. He surrounds the ship, but because I mentioned to you he's a very good king, he doesn't just blow the boat out of the water and hang any who survive, which is the normal treatment of pirates. He throws a gangplank across. From his ship. The other ships are just waiting, guns all aimed at this one ship. And he says, Listen very carefully. I know who you are and I know the sorts of things you've done. I'll leave this gangplank here for a few minutes. And if any of you would like to change sides, I'll give you a plenary pardon, a complete pardon for absolutely everything, whether you're the captain of the pirate ship, whether you're the master of gunnery whether you're the most recent cabin boy, you come across the gangplank, I will give you a pardon, but you need to understand you're beginning a whole new way of life. You know how to be a pirate. You need to learn how we do things in my kingdom. Any of you can come. I'm only leaving this gangplank out for a little while. Time to decide. He doesn't give them 40 days like God gave the Ninevites. This is a story about us and God. God sends his son. In a sense, his son is the gangplank by his death. And there are three options. And I want to suggest to you here, you'll be one of these three. And one of the helpful things in spiritual things is to get clarity rather than vagueness. One group of people will say, yes, I'm coming over. They don't just say yes, they do yes. They walk across the gangplank they're embraced by the king, they're given a pardon, they begin a new life. They'll make mistakes, but they've begun a new life. Some will look at it and give an honest, no, I'm not coming for whatever reason. I'm not doing it, I'm not changing. Some will say, maybe, 
hmm, let me think about this for a few minutes. And that's legitimate to think about it for a few minutes. But here's the, here's the consequence. If you say yes to Jesus, or when you said yes to Jesus, or if you say yes to Jesus today, he says, welcome, eternal life, forgiveness, friendship. If you say no, it's death. It's the wages of sin is death. Both physical death and, as the Bible speaks, of the horrors of second death. Maybe is an interesting one. Maybe it's dangerous because you're still in the place that will be taken down. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we have the sort of Simply Christianity course and things like that. So people get a chance to think about it, realising, OK, we need to use our God-given brain, look at the evidence, argue it back, backwards and forwards. But to know that if you, while ever you haven't said yes, you're practically speaking saying no. And you don't have 40 days. Because Jesus says, on a day just like today, I will come back and it will be judgment day. Or you could have a nasty accident, but that's, who knows. But either way, you need to face, that's, that's where we're at. So it would be worthwhile, I think, just working out which, which of those are you. Are you a person who said, yes, I'm changing sides, I'm joining King Jesus, I'm trusting him to give me a pardon. Does it mean you'll be a perfect soldier and person who becomes like Jesus? No. You'll have to keep on repenting, right? Come, oops, coming back. But your commitment is there. Or you say, maybe. Remember this great line from Jonah. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God. That's what he's like. You see it at the cross. Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And as that woman wrote to her daughter, this is what God is saying to us. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it does not matter. Please come home. Change sides. Allow him to embrace you in forgiveness and mercy. Uh, that's what it is to be Christian. And then live the life where you're constantly having to do little acts of repentance. But the acute crisis repentance, like the Ninevites did, is done. Well, in a gentler way, probably we were teaching that to the kids because it's important for the kids. It's important for adults. The best thing you can do for your children is to make sure that you've changed sides because you will be a massive influence on your children. To teach them by your life, yes, what Jesus says and what Jonah says is true. These are the things that really matter. These are the things that will really last. Well, let me lead in prayer. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to be adults in our thinking, to be honest with ourselves, and pray for people who are not sure where they're at, that they're still sort of saying maybe they like the king, but they're not really as yet placed themselves under his loving authority. We pray that you would help people to do that today. And then to know that as they repent, they receive the promised gift of a complete total pardon, that it no longer matters what they've done or what they've become. Lord, we pray for people who are saying no, that you would have mercy on them. Help them to look afresh at Jesus, or perhaps for the first time, really, to look at Jesus. Um, and Lord, for those of us who've said yes, we're thankful that you've been so patient with us. Help us to keep saying yes back to you um, in every part of our life, that we would be men and women who say yes when you call us to obey, that yes to being 
truthful rather than dishonest, to being loving rather than being lazy, to being generous rather than being greedy. In all these various ways that we would be people who say yes and embrace and enjoy your great yes of us in Jesus. So, Father, thank you for the book of Jonah. In Jesus' name, amen.